Amen. Thank you so much. May we never forget, as we contemplate the work of God's hands, what an awesome thing it is that though, how does David say it? What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man? You've made him a little lower than the angels. And yet we have become the focus of a God of an immense universe. I'm going to take just a few minutes before we start and point a few things out. If our brother deacons would hand out these cards. Uh, these just came to us a day or two ago. And what's about to be put in your hands is our prophecy, Jesus on Prophecy Seminar Jumbo Postcard. When you get it, you're going to notice that we've added a couple features to our upcoming prophecy series. We will go 12 nights in a row. So from September 23 to about October 5 or so, if you ask your wife or your wife asks you if there's a meeting, it doesn't matter what night of the week it is, the answer is yes. And what we have determined is that here in Berrien Springs with multiplying calendars, and you've seemed to have affirmed this, that just really going after this thing for 12 nights and then on the weekends we will still have sermons focused on our prophetic message for both the Sabbath morning and the Sabbath evening vespers. And this is how we will tie our series off. So most of the month of October we will be preaching on prophetic subjects, subjects tied to the cornerstone of our church. I want you to notice that uh, we do have a children's program and we also will have special features including several of those who hold an expertise in science and faith, archaeology, theology, these things. We are very appreciative of our doctors in the community that are going to be showing us that the Bible is true. We have the evidence. I didn't say proof. We're on a faith journey. Proof is not something God provides. What, pro what God provides is evidence. And we're going to have a little feature night by night. And for the first week, we'll have Matt and Josie Minicus with us sharing their musical gifts. We will start at 6.45, and we will be done by 8 o'clock, and some nights before then. So we will be good stewards of your busy schedule. But remember, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. So the God of efficiency is our partner in this. And so we know your kids need to be ready to be at school the next day. But you know what? What we really want for our children is for them to be converted. And if you've never heard Pastor Joe tell his story, how as a young man, God spoke to his heart. He came upstairs during an evangelistic series and started listening to the messages. And he was one to Christ. All the work of the parents, all the prayers of the extended family, all the ministry of the Pathfinders and the Adventurers, it all matters. But during this meeting, we will be calling people to make decisions for the truth as it is in Jesus. We have more of these cards, and you'll be able to receive them, and sometimes they'll be tucked in your bulletins. But I'm leaving tomorrow morning to take about 40-some people canoeing in the Boundary Waters, our 7th and 8th graders and their parents and some of our staff, our teaching staff, and... Uh, I won't be here next Sabbath, but next Sabbath you're in for a treat. Dr. Roy Gain is going to be preaching a message in anticipation of this that's going to clarify 1844 and the elements that lay the foundation for some of our biblical 
uh, understandings. It will be a very, very blessed event next Sabbath. Please be praying for him. If you're with us on the 40 days, which I hope most of you are, I'd love to have all of you on that. We started a 40-day journey in prayer. We picked partners. There's 100-plus people doing this, maybe more. I just know there was about 150 out at the last prayer meeting I was at. We gave you two opportunities, a place to list five people you could be praying for that you might invite. Of course, you wouldn't want to invite if you weren't going to be there. And you know, um, if I was a a, uh, officer in an army, I would need an army to fight with. Folks, when opening night comes on Monday, September 23, I'll be praying that the Spirit will touch our hearts and that this place will be full. And it's full with the people that already know the message. It's full with people that sort of know the message. And it's people with no knowledge of the message. And just like that picture of that net, I hope our lives are so prayed together and our commitments to each other that many are caught in this wonderful gospel experience of discovering what a pleasure it is to be a part of the family of God. Please be praying. You can watch this online. If you're not able to be here, of course, if you live in the community, I encourage you to be here because your presence is not an opportunity just for you. It's an opportunity for you to minister for Jesus. Also, I want to bring up, uh, if I could, those pictures you noticed this week that things started happening down the road. This church has raised $50,000 for this. You might recognize that as neighbor to neighbor on your left. They are pouring the footers, which is the lower level of the foundation. And that was happening yesterday afternoon. I just happened to stop by and pick up some organic uh, vegetables. But uh, some of our own workmen are going to be taking it from here. But Neighbor to Neighbor is a place that we have partnered with to minister for those that find themselves in difficult ways. Of course, they run a consignment shop, but their main ministry is to build relationships through the consignment shop to minister in other ways. And uh, whether it's uh, AA meetings uh, or other community service events to grow people in the full spectrum of mind, body, and soul. And there's why they're doing it, because that was just cleaned up by one of our members a day before, and that's what it looked like on Friday. I don't want to discourage anybody, but uh, there's a never-ending supply of secondhand stuff that's taken there. So the money we've raised has been a big encouragement to them. The building is going up. Let's be praying for the builders. And one more thing before we go on. Thank you, AV team, for your flexibility on that. I just returned from El Salvador, and there is a neat opportunity that's waiting for us. One week before our evangelistic meetings begin, they will be having some very, very important meetings. And those meetings are going to decide whether or not an extension of one of our other colleges comes onto the campus of their ECUS, which is their academy. It's too expensive for most El Salvadorians to go to uh, Costa Rica or Mexico to go to school. And it looks like the general conference is encouraging. The division president is very much for it. And there's going to be a meeting with a number of union officials and uh, members of the university there at Unideca in Costa Rica. And they are going to potentially vote permission to build an extension of uh, the, the university at Alauela, Costa Rica on the campus of Ecus, which means that our El Salvadorian churches, there are 200,000 members, there are 1,000 churches, 800 of them have buildings. 
those young men and women who graduate from academy, this is all wonderful, and some of you are supporting them through that. But an academy uh, graduation certificate is not enough to earn a living. Plus, they have trouble meeting their own pastoral needs because El Salvador is not on the top ten destinations of where you want to live in the world. So they're going to train their own teachers. They're going to train their own pastors. Now, between uh, the members of the village church and hopefully others in Michigan and some of the members in Indiana, we think we have about $100,000 committed to building this school. And it looks like we will be actually the ones who put the block on top of block in the rebar and the grout and the mortar and all these things. It looks like come March, we're going to be at the ground level, every pun intended, we're going to be at the ground level of building another extension of a university in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I ran into one of the members of the General uh, Conference when I was in the airport somewhere in Denver later earlier this year and he told me how for the first three for the first 100 years of Adventist church history we were able to get three medical schools but it appears that in 2020 in Indianapolis at the general conference session it appears that we are going to celebrate the opening of three more now universities are not easy to establish and it just makes me feel so happy to think that we in Michigan and our brothers and sisters in Indiana could be the financing, the hands, the feet, the encouragement to actually establishing another institution of higher learning, be it an extension and eventually its own independent school. Because if you live in Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador, the expense of attending, Costa Rica is a fairly nice country, it's, it's a little better off compared to some of these other ones. They're all wonderful people, but not all country is structured with economic opportunity. And for the week that precedes our Jesus on Prophecy, we need to be praying for them because decisions are going to be made. And it's exciting. It's wonderful. And with God's blessing, we're going to see His work continue to expand. And this morning, that's what I want to talk with you about, how to expand the work of God. Let's pray. Lord, we've sung, we've brought gifts, we've shared gifts, gifts of music, we've offered prayers, and if we've been in the Sabbath school, we've studied the Word, but now, Lord, we've set across aside this time for all generations to gather as a family to hear Your Word preached, which is different. I'm asking now, Lord, anoint my heart, my lips, my mind. And I'm praying, anoint the heart and the ears and the minds of those who have gathered with us. Now, Lord, I pray, may this be a moment of true edification for your cause. Thank you for the power to decide. Thank you for the freedom to hear and gather. And bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are on a journey. It is a journey to further focus, organize, and dedicate our lives to the expansion of God's cause. It's important for everybody listening to me here to know that if you are not being used by God to advance His name, to tell the story of His glory, if you are not engaged 
in proclaiming the goodness of God and living it out as a witness, you are going backwards whether you can sense it or not. This is a spiritual principle. It is a spiritual law. We are swimming or boating, canoeing, if you, sh- if you should so like the metaphor, upstream. And when we stop paddling for the sake of those who need to be conveyed from one understanding to another, we go backwards. Spirit of Prophecy declares it to be a state of perpetual backsliding. So should you think that sheltering your family from the world is enough to transport your kids from one worldview to another, from one paradigm or one frame to another, think again because all the shielding in the world will not save your children. It's important to know Christian education matters, and there are still people making decisions about Christian education even as of this weekend. I encourage you to take a step of faith. Reach out to our school or whatever school fits the appropriate age category of your children, but it's still not enough. Our schools are to be training centers for a mindset and a lifestyle that both declares a uniqueness for Christ and a determined, focused effort to build up His work. This reality is one that may not be recognized, but to be ignorant of it is to find oneself moving away from the very object you say you desire. So this morning, as we come to our second leadership weekend with this church, we're especially looking at the organizational structure of the New Testament church. So take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to our scripture reading. The book of Acts, chapter 6. In this moment, in the history of the new church, a challenge is presented. The challenge is, is that people find themselves disadvantaged economically because they've declared a loyalty to Jesus. If you think that was for then, and it's not that way now, understand that there will be sacrifices to pay that affect the pocketbook when we choose Jesus. It's not just that we return an honest tithe and give a thankful, generous offering. It's the fact that sometimes the devil decides and God gives permission to allow our lives to endure a certain part of suffering. And sometimes it's economic. And if it's not for you now, be certain of this one thing. The day is coming when it will happen again. They responded by selling their property. They responded by selling their substance. They held all things in common, and nobody was to be neglected. But if you lost your job as a priest, or you lost your, your following, your, your clientele as a businessman, whether it was working with shoes, or making copper pots, or ceramic uh, trinkets, these things were such that the early church rised to the occasion and took care of its own. We are to be taking care of each other now. We are to be taking care of ourselves and our families first. And when we find the poor amongst us, which Jesus said would always be there. Why? To exercise, uh, as the King James Version would say, the bowels of compassion or the, the desires of our heart to care. In this moment in church history, the church is robust and it is vibrant But it's about to run through a big pothole. It's about to hit a huge speed bump. The bridge is not out, but there are stress factors in the relationships that are holding it together. Acts chapter 6, looking at verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. I've highlighted those three words. 
a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable, it's not good for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, of whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, this isn't the first time or the last time some form of administrative crisis and attitudinal challenge is going to face a group of people. As a matter of fact, depending on how you guarded the spirit of your heart and the garden of your mind over this last week or season of life, you might come, come here this morning with the bitter fruits of a negative spirit. As a matter of fact, when we look at this storyline, there is a complaint that has created a crisis. The question we ought to ask ourselves is, was this a real crisis or was this a perceived one? And you say, well, pastor, how are we going to know? Well, there is a way to know if you care to know. And that is take just a little bit of time, read carefully the narrative, and then you might want to take advantage of that five books. We call them the Conflict of the Ages series. They're a commentary, but they're not an ordinary commentary. They are a commentary that has woven through their insights and their understandings the prophetic gift of their author, actually the gift from God through the author. When we look at this storyline, a complaint arose is a phrase that cannot get by us very easily. And the question is, how often should complaints arise? And what establishes the difference between a legitimate complaint and one that's prompted by a negative spirit? And how would we know the difference? These kinds of things ought to be considered by a modern-day group of pilgrims that are going from planet Earth, from spiritual Egypt, onto the heavenly Canaan. Because if there's one thing that made Moses' life bitter and that God can't stand, it's a complaining spirit. Don't think so? And why would it be? Proverbs 6, chapter 16, there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. Lying makes it on the list two times. But when God thinks to himself and he wants to make sure the list is complete, as number seven, he puts down one who sows discord among the brethren. Now, when I showed you the picture of the nets in El Salvador, and I gave that boy his $2 for letting us use his his, uh, fish for some pictures, and I showed you this man who was just skillfully netting, uh, knitting his net... God knows that the net that catches people is the love of the brethren. God knows that the bond of perfection is love. And God knows that when the net of his people is full of holes, there are people who would be gathered into the kingdom, but under the stress and the uncertainty of conviction and the fear of the future, they swim away because they have not found that which would really keep them. Yes, God hates those who sow discord 
He hates the actions of those who sow discord among the brethren because the very act of sowing discord is like taking scissors and cutting holes in the net. You see, the other reason I believe that this complaining spirit is an abomination to God is that it is the first fruits of pride and you can trace its experience all the way back to the days of heaven when there was one who had allowed and fertilized the seeds of, seeds of arrogance to grow in his heart and he began sowing these seeds of discord very subtly, very, with lots of sophistry and wisdom. He began subtly causing doubt and eventually spilled over with negative spirit into complaining about God's methods and God's ways and God's administration. You see, complaining is a fruit of arrogance. It is a fruit of pride. And it becomes illegitimate when it is never focused on really solving the problem. It's really just a platform for establishing the superior thinking, wisdom, education, or experience of somebody. So how would you know when a complaint's okay? How would you know? Does this mean we live in a Pollyanna world where nobody ever says anything to anybody else? Not hardly. Well, I'm going to tell you how you can know when your complaint has some legitimacy. When you tell it to the right person who can do something about it and fix it, you've got a legitimate complaint. And when you tell anybody else, you've got a spiritual problem. And I want you to think about this, friends. Because the Bible's clear that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man's countenance. I had somebody actually sit and talk with me between the services about an observation. If they would have gone to another person, it would have been this kind of complaining. But because they brought it to somebody who could do something about it, it became a legitimate constructive criticism, and the two are miles apart. So when you can't be honest enough to say to yourself, you know what, there's a little root of bitterness or there's a huge taproot of bitterness in me and I'm telling all the wrong people, you're just complaining. You're part of that mixed multitude spiritually and it is a stench in the nostrils of God. I didn't make up those sentiments. Those are the sentiments of Scripture. God doesn't want holes in the net of this family fabric. He doesn't want people cutting and carving and slicing and dicing the fabric of our togetherness. Human pride began in heaven as devilish pride and it exists yet still today. So carry your concern to someone who can do something about it and it's no longer a complaining spirit. It's now a solution to a problem maybe somebody else didn't see. Was this a legitimate complaint or was it illegitimate? Well, let's let the spirit of prophecy answer that question for us. She says, the hearts of those who had been converted under the labors of the apostles were softened and united by Christian love. Despite their former prejudices, all were in harmony with one another. That's the state of the church through Acts chapter 5. Satan knew that so long as this union continued to exist, he would be powerless to check the progress of the gospel truth. Man, I like that line. You want to see Satan shut down? Then just press together. Press in with Christ. You'll seek me and you find me, God says, when you seek me with what? All your heart. And you know what? God says that this house is a place for finding Him. God says this is a place we should be gathering. Our hearts should be knit together in Christian love and we should look for this kind of experience where Satan is powerless to check the progress of the gospel truth. And he sought to take advantage of former habits of thought in the hope that he might be able to introduce into the church elements of disunion. Now, she comments earlier that there had long been distrust, prejudice, and bigotry between the Jews and the Greeks. 
Does it sound at all like anything in modern society? Is there anything here that makes the 21st century able to take, get a takeaway here? I want to tell you, it doesn't matter whether your skin color is grossly or uniquely on bipolar opposites or whether it's just some other part of your pedigree that separates you. So maybe you've never graduated from the eighth grade and maybe the guy down the pew holds a a postdoctoral degree. You can look down your nose at somebody for anything. And those have always existed. And if you think we're getting out of this journey from here to there without it, check in because it's not happening. But it changes when the love of God fills your heart and all of a sudden you are not the center of your world. It's other people. It's the message. It's Christ crucified. These things went away when Jesus was lifted up on the cross. The experience of the church was pure pure through persecution, through fear, through suffering. But Satan is not content to watch this mighty steamroller smash everything in its path. And so he says to himself, all right, I know how to work with this. Listen. Solomon wrote it himself. He said, be careful not to uh, listen too carefully lest you hear your servant cursing you. And then if that was all, it would be good enough advice, but he's not going to leave us there. It's not like, well, I'm better than them. I wouldn't curse. I wouldn't run somebody down. He goes on in the rest of the verse to say, because you know yourself have cursed as well. It's a human thing. I don't get off it. You don't get off it. I was preaching up at the District 6 camp meeting or mini meeting for their district this summer, and I think I surprised them. Because I, uh, I didn't surprise them with this sentiment. I said, you know, it's not okay for you to go home and talk about your pastor. <laughs> Negative. Talk about him positive all you want. Share a word of encouragement. But you know, um, and many of you do, but this is for all pastors in all places and for the 1,200 people that subscribe to our YouTube channel and the 3,000 likes we have on Facebook. This is for anybody that's listening wherever you're at. Some of you don't attend here. Some of you are here just checking this church out. But one thing that it's super important for us to understand is that pastors are people too. And so when I told them, you shouldn't go home and talk negative about your pastors, like, yeah, yeah, we know, but we got a real dud. (laughs) No, they didn't say that. But I said, you know, it's not good for pastors to gather together and talk about you either. And of course they do sometimes. Some people are pills. Divine medication for the preacher to make sure his sanctification doesn't slow down. (laughs) I'm as human as you are. And if you think when I gather with a dozen pastors and one of them starts talking about a problem they're facing, I'm not tempted to throw my hat in the pile, you better think again. I try to do it generically if I do it, but I shouldn't do it. I'm just like you. I can complain as good as anybody, especially if you catch me at the right moment. And so I know how you are, because I'm you and you're me. But I'm going to tell you something. When the Spirit of Jesus is operative in my heart, I don't complain about you. And of course, the opposite can be true too. I'm thankful to say this has not been a complaining church. I don't think I've really... I pastored one, but the Lord delivered me from it after a short period of time. 
And I did care about them, but they were using me up. It was all in God's hands. I didn't hit the eject button. A complaint arose. What's Jesus say? You clean out the house? But that demon remembers where you hide the key. And he comes back and looks under the mat. And he pulls it out. And he's got seven buddies. And he sticks the key in the door of your heart. And he turns and says, ah, yeah, this one works. And Jesus says when they move back in, the place is clean. That's better than how they left it. And they say the estate of that person was worse than before. If there's a blight on the effectiveness of the Adventist church right now, it is disunity and it is fueled by a complaining spirit. If there's a spiritual cancer eating our vitality up, it is disunity. And if there is a terminal element to our Christian walk, even though this church looks like it will falter, it will not. But if there's a terminal component to an individual's life, I would bank big money on the chance that this complaining spirit and this pride of life would be rooting itself in the vital organs of our Christianity and sapping our spiritual life away. As she is writing, she makes it clear. It came to pass that as disciples were multiplied, the enemy succeeded. Bad phrase in arousing the suspicions of some who had formerly been in the habit of looking with jealousy on their brethren in the faith and of finding fault with their spiritual leaders. So what did what, the devil do? He looks around for somebody who's got their brain, a deep furrow. They've connected the synapses on this habit of life. And he, he knows they're fighting the faith to try not to, but he realizes he might be able to hijack this experience and do something with it. And that's what he does. And there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. The cause of this complaint, listen, the cause of this complaint was an alleged neglect. In other words, the logic she uses theologically to show it was alleged was that the church was rolling on and there was nothing to shut them down. It was experiencing the fruitfulness and the fruits, both the experience and the additions to the church. This was an old way of thinking that resurfaced itself and did not need to. But prompt measures must now be taken, she writes, to remove all occasion for dissatisfaction, lest the enemy triumph in his effort to bring about a division among the believers. So what did they do? What do you do when you have a crisis? What, you, when you have a crisis of people, you have to, like Moses, as we talked last week in Deuteronomy, or I should say in Exodus chapter 32 or so, Moses stands up and he says to the people in the midst of the drunken orgy, who is on the Lord's side? And what happens is the Levites rally to Moses' side. In this case, it's going to be a solution of leadership, just like it always is. And the leader will pay a price to stay the tide of evil. And that hasn't changed either. Prompt measures must be taken to remove this aroused suspicion. And so what do they do? They look for people who are full of two categories. 
They are filled with the Spirit and they are men of wisdom. This qualification is a call to be like Jesus. And you can't be filled with the Spirit when you're filling your life with things that are contradictory to the Spirit. There are people who take the name Seventh-day Adventist who are no more Seventh-day Adventist than the person walking on the street with one exception. They go to church on Saturday. They don't fill their hearts and minds with the Word of God. They're not pleading for an outpouring of the Spirit. Their parents went to church on Saturday and so did their grandma and grandpa and maybe their greats. And a few, maybe their great greats. But one is not a Christian because one holds record in the Seventh-day Adventist church. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to make a priority of meeting with God. But to be filled with the Holy Spirit will be the confidence and the comfort in the days that are coming. When I was in El Salvador, one of the masters traveling with me said, listen, all of their enemies are out in the public. You can see them. Poverty. Violence. You start looking around and you can see in El Salvador, there's enemy number one. There's enemy number two. Lack of access to good care medically. But in this country, he said, they're all veiled. But I want you to know something. In the first service, Pastor Andy Stojanovich was praying about the rising of evil in our country. Pretty soon, when the time is right, evil will no longer veil itself. It will not be a sideward attack, which we call a flanking. It will be a frontal assault on the people of God. And if they have not found a way into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, they will be peeling out of this church as fast as rats run when the light's turned on. Nobody listening to me here today needs to be afraid of the future. (laughs) I was laying down there on Monday night in my bed, in the orphanage. They have homes down there. And you know, it's winter in El Salvador. And I'm telling you, I'm from the Midwest, so I've seen the sky turn green. I've seen that eerie calm just before the the funnels form in the clouds. I was laying in my bed, and I could hear the thunder coming. But I want to tell you, one bolt of lightning and one peal of thunder was so close that I started up out of my bed and I thought to myself, if I was one of those Old Testament people and God started sending the thunder and the hailstones, I think the gig was up too. You know, they had their stones in their hands to kill Caleb and Joshua. All they did was give a good report that God can do this thing. Did you forget we walked through the Red Sea on dry ground? That's all they were doing, and they were going to kill him for it. And this was the covenant-keeping people. These were the people who said, all that he said we'll do, except listen to the prophetic voice. But I want to tell you at the very end, just like God intervened and came down onto the tabernacle and saved Caleb and Joshua's life, God will have no problem intervening to save any one of his children that need to be saved. And if he doesn't save us, it will be because he gave us a saving confidence in him that we could be victorious and triumph still, even in facing death. We need to quit focusing on that which makes us afraid. We need to quit focusing on human solutions. We need to remember there's a God bigger than the general conference or the division or even your local pastor. Praise the Lord. And we've had to go forward knowing 
that with this kind of living faith, with God choosing and guiding and directing, the church can go forward and it can have a powerful, mighty harvest. But we need leaders who are full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit who can be put in charge. Don't miss those words in the Bible. This society has an anemia to authority. But I want to remind you, especially all pastors, that Titus is told in chapter 2.15, let no man despise you. In every human relationship, trust and respect are the two pillars on which the relationship is built. And some people in the name of a very weak-kneed Christianity think it's all about being nice when sometimes the nicest thing you can do is reset the respectability dynamic of the relationship. I don't have time to retread the message I preached several months ago called Wrestle, Fight, and Pray, which was on John Wesley and the tremendous antagonism and resistance he faced. Every generation that raises the standard up is going to be resisted by the devil because he doesn't say, oh, you Christians want my prisoners? Here's the key. Unshackle them. (laughs) No. When the Spirit comes in and he throws the shackles off like he did in the Philippian jail, the devil's mad. And he comes in with a vengeance. He wants everything except to see this church united, the gospel net of harmony and togetherness moving forward. So why not pick on long-established prejudices between Jew and Greek? Or why not pick on them between other races or other genders? Why not find something to divide this church so that we can stop its progress? That's all he's after. Christian love forbades it. Christian generosity provides for the care and the love and the proof that there's something more here than sentiment. And the kind of men we're going to get here, if you just keep reading in the chapter, are going to lay down their lives for God's message for the church. What are we willing to do? So often, it's a difficult thing for us to arouse ourselves from slumber to be in the house of the Lord. And if we met that commitment, whether we made it to Sabbath school or not, the idea of prayer meeting is like, are you kidding me? That's for a generation ago. Or three or four. But the last I checked, what the Bible said, is that if we will humble ourselves, what Jesus said, and pray, what Jesus said, if there will be a symphony, if there will be an agreeing, that Greek word symphoneo, if there will be an agreement in prayer. In other words, you've got to get together. And by the way, friends, by the way, you know what the main point of heaven is going to be, don't you? I mean, you know what the greatest blessing of heaven is going to be, don't you? The greatest blessing of heaven is going to be together. That person who died in Christ, you're going to be together. That person who goes halfway around the world to serve Christ, you're going to be together. That child who lost their life to disease or whatever it might be, you're going to be together. You know what? Being together is a great blessing. There are places in the world where you can't even gather to do what we're doing. Being together. Get to the point, Pastor. Here's the point. For a net to work, people have to get together. If you don't like being together here and you make no effort to be together here, what makes you think you're going to fall out of earth into heaven and all of a sudden like being with the people you didn't work at learning to like here? I want you to think about it. When the Bible says a deacon is given to hospitality, it's not just the deacon. It's just that the deacon shows the way. 
Because being given to hospitality is an act of loving service, and it takes a lot of work. And sometimes you've got to work at loving the people you're being hospitable to because they think they deserve it. Filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit, they were put in charge. Man, I'm glad for our deacons. And so every single one of them that makes sure you never notice there's a bump or a ripple in our Sabbath morning experience. Every single one of them that spreads mulch over at the church school or trims bushes or fixes plumbing lines or whatever it might be here or shares a Bible study or facilitates a small group or shows up to pray and lay a hand on some young man's shoulder and encourage him to rise up and be a man of God. They are given a charge with your responsibility comes authority. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God because God set that up. And when somebody's given duly constituted authority and they don't exercise it, it leads to chaos. We looked at that last week in the story of Aaron and the golden calf. Duly constituted his leader and he does nothing to resist the next strongest leader in line who happens to think going back to Egypt and taking a golden calf will create some favor. They are put in charge. Put in charge of feeding the poor and a whole lot more. And does that make them a subcategory for ministry in the church? Not hardly. They develop their gifts of sharing the message. They develop their love for the brothers and the sisters. Deacons, deaconesses, They are the leadership development team of a church. They are practical. They are personal. And they are spiritual. These are the categories that create the kind of unstoppability, the kind of organization and focus that makes a church strong. And by the way, make sure all of you deacons and all of you parents and all of you presidents and whoever else might be listening, you need to know something. Leadership has an awful lot to do with communication. And when you're listening, make sure you can distinguish between a complaint and a constructive criticism. Because if you listen the wrong way to a complaint and they walk away from your conversation, they say, he agreed with me. And they're more resilient in their wrong direction than they were before they talked to you. Let's get beyond just identifying with people. Could we do that? Let's actually love them enough to say, you know what, I've heard you, and I can see some legitimacy in it, but I'm concerned. Because attitudinally what I hear sounds like there's some kind of root of bitterness that's tied to this thing. Have you gone and talked with that person? I'd like to have a special pastoral badge that I hand out to people. We actually took a person on a mission trip once. They weren't a member of this church. On the mission trip, they made it into a small category of people who had a bad experience. They felt that someone didn't talk to them quite nicely enough. I'm all for talking nice to people. When they got back from the mission trip, they quit going to church. And then because one of the coordinators reached out to them, someone from a different church, they thought that that coordinator was sympathetic with their concern or their complaint. That coordinator listened long enough and what tipped the conversation over to the, okay, you, got, you went far enough, I've listened long enough, 
was when they started complaining against another pastor. Not me. And they started running down the pastor, and then that coordinator, I'd give them the, if I had the medal, I'd give it to them. Didn't benefit me at all, but it benefited God's work. That coordinator stuck up them and said, no, that pastor's not like that. Now let me tell you what the good news on the story is. Is that that person had a little check themselves moment. Turned out that this was a woman. I don't know if she's a deaconess or not, but she could be if she wanted to be, if God affirmed her in the church. But not only did that person check themselves, thankful to a faithful friend who only listened so long and knew how to have the right conversation, but that person went on to go back to church, and then they went on to make a great big donation to the mission. Now that's full cycle healing thanks to good leadership. And when you don't have good leadership, you don't get that. When you can't hang on through those rough moments and you don't know what love is, just ask yourself, what I want done for me if somebody else was listening to this conversation and I was the subject matter? Good leadership sets the stage for safety and structure and innocence and happiness in a family. When there's no dad or no mom that's anchoring down the healthy structures of life, when they have not taken their charge, which is from God, and properly anchored the family on the laws of health, the children will be all over the place. But anchoring them in the child's youth is a key for when they go through the troublesome times of, am I a child? Am I an adult? Should I listen? Should I not? We call it adolescence. This kind of leadership is the leadership God marks out for a deacon. We don't want people who don't understand this at home. God says, if you don't know how to do it at your house, please don't import it to my house. We don't need multiple layers and exponential levels of dysfunction in the house of God. The standard's high. And if you say to yourself, ooh, can't do that. You're right. You can't. Neither can I. But the truth of the matter is that if I turn to Jesus and I give myself the luxury of self-honesty, I can acknowledge that the cross was done by me and the cross was done for me and the God who died there on my behalf wants to fill me and I can be changed to be this kind of man or this kind of woman. They laid their hands on them. Let's get away from all the technical jargon about what is and what isn't ordination. Let's just acknowledge here there is some measure of affirmation here. They are given the affirming touch of the church and they are to go out and do their job. And they should bear the fruits of the Spirit and they should work in the power of the Spirit and the church will be strengthened again. And the result, verse 7, don't pass this up, friends. The Word of God. Here's how the solution worked. Verse 7. The Word of God kept on spreading. Sorry, Lucifer, you lost on that score. The Word of God kept on spreading. And we go farther than that because it's not just the unnumbered multitudes, the thousands, the numbers of the disciples continued to increase greatly. And not just some, but a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now let me tell you something about how a church works. You've always heard somebody say 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Yeah, might not be too far off. Now I know both sides of that. 
In some churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work because 20% want to be in control of everything. How do I know? Because I come into churches and they want to control me. And I've watched. I think the first time I saw this, it was a Dorcas. I won't tell you what church I was in, but it's been a long time ago. And I, I walked into the building, and when I saw padlocks on the cupboards, I thought to myself, I think we have a problem. Now, in a big church, you might padlock a few things because everybody doesn't know everybody, and there's a lot of coming and going. But when you only have 25 people coming to church, padlocking the cupboards is not necessary. In some churches, 80% of the people don't really care. And they're not even sure why they're there except somebody raised them to do it. And they have made no commitments to anything. It's what the church can give them. It's not what they can give the world as they work with the church. Where are you? Is this moment right now about another little self-esteem pick-me-up? Or are we living on the cusp of eternity? And like I said, as I was flying across the Gulf of Mexico last Sunday, I'm saying to myself, how could people with so much do so little? Now, I'm pretty proud of this body of believers. We just voted, or I should say, with the money you gave, I stood with a group of people and we all agreed this church was worthy. They had a metal roof up and some steel poles, that's it. We had been telling the churches in El Salvador that we'll have a committee and we'll talk about it. We decided to hold our committee on the spot. So they went over in their little huddle and they prayed. And we came over in our little huddle and we talked. I don't remember if we prayed. And we decided this church was worthy of a church and they ought to know right now all we gave them was $10,000. But I want to tell you, when, when it took you years to get what you got, people started crying. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. But what if you don't have a house to go into? Or what if a house is all you got? Or somebody's porch or a mango tree? There was one lady, as I stood in a mountainside that had been excavated. I don't really know how they did it. I mean, massive amounts of dirt were gone. The mayor showed them favor, and they borrowed a piece of equipment. But even with a big power scoop, with a big power shovel, I'm not sure how they did it. There was one lady there who had prayed for 48 years for a church. Now, I've traveled around, and I've never heard of anything longer than a couple decades. 48 years. She's an old woman. She was a young woman when she started praying. But I'll tell you what, she was there. She wanted to see these people that were helping un unblock the obstacles. We are living in a day and age in which if ever there was a time that we need godly leadership to rise up, as Moses was told by Jethro, thousands, one hundreds, fifties, and tens. That means there was somebody in a leadership training school down here in the tens, and they got graduated to the fifties and to the hundreds, and eventually they might be leading a thousand. We have to cross generationally and with great intent and focus be looking to develop our leaders so they're filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom, and so that our church could move on. 
Ellen White says, speaking of the early church, she says, only as they were united with Christ could the disciples hope to have the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit and the cooperation of angels of heaven. Only as they were united, with the help of these divine agencies, they would present before the world a united front, and they would be victorious in the conflict they were compelled to wage unceasingly against the powers of darkness. As they should continue to labor unitedly, listen to this, how many times are you hearing the word union and united? Heavenly messengers, this is how it's going to work on September 23, heavenly messengers would go before them, opening the way. Hearts would be prepared for the reception of truth, and many would be won to Christ. So long as they remained united, the church would go forth, and she quotes from Song of Solomon, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and I love this last part, terrible as an army with banners. I want you to see the army of God in lockstep, marching forward. Nothing can stop them, and everybody who sees them is afraid. And then she makes this statement, nothing could withstand her onward progress. The church would advance from victory to victory. Have you ever heard that in any of our hymnody? Gloriously fulfilling her divine mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. And one last quote. These men were to take their position unitedly on the side of right and to maintain it with firmness and decision. Thus, they would have a uniting influence upon the entire flock. If I just read that right, deacons, you have an extra critical, crucial, elemental cornerstone role in establishing the attitudinal altitude of this congregation. You listen the wrong way, we go down. You care and minister and listen the right way, we all go up. I'll tell you what, as a pastor, I get weary of looking at statistics that say I'm in reverse when I want to be in forward. But I love this phrase, nothing could withstand her onward progress. That's the church. So how does it work? Stephen gets called in to defend his faith. He stands before them thinking he's going to teach them something. But somewhere in the middle of the sermon, he figures it out. This is his last will and testament. And what's he going to do? He's going to talk about the heritage of Israel. And it's not enough that he should die for nothing. So he goes ahead and he gets bold. And finally, after he's reminded them of their checkered history and all the holes that have been cut in the net of Israel's attempt to win the world and their absence of even using a net, he finally says the words that cut him off. When he says, you're just like your fathers, stiff-necked. And what do they do? They cover their ears. They throw off their robes, and there's a young lawyer who's letting them toss them onto his forearm. And they rush upon Stephen, and they snuff out his life with rocks. It's called stoning. And all the while, there's Saul thinking he got what he deserved. But from that point forward, Saul never put his head on a pillow without seeing the face of Stephen and hearing the words. As he declared, he saw Jesus stand up. I'm telling you. You've heard the quotes. Give me a hundred men that fear nothing but sin. 
and serve nothing but God and I'll change the world. But I'm here to tell you, 12 apostles and seven deacons sure got this thing off to the right start. And if we had seven or 70 or 700, it wouldn't hurt because we have a global message and a global mandate that's bigger than it's ever been before. Man, woman, and child. Everybody's called to be just like Jesus who's going to take us up to higher ground. And I'm planning by God's grace. And I'm inviting you again. I've actually thought about starting to pray. I've been afraid to do it. Lord, I want to see you face to face when you come. I'm afraid to pray it partially because I know to get me there, I'm going to pay a little more than I thought about or know about. But man, what would it be to hear Jesus say, well done, good, and what's the next word? Faithful servant. Today, seven men. How about an exponential number more? May God help each of us to go to the high places. May God help each of us to go to higher ground and may we serve Him without reserve. Pray for these deacons today as they gather to meet and pledge themselves to Christ and each other and this church and may God help us all to stand like the brave.